Um, we are, we're, we're starting today, we're, we're continuing through Acts. We've been in Acts for a while, um, and we're, we're uh, continuing that journey through Acts, but we're going to start breaking Acts down into a few mini-series, uh, uh, looking at what, at what Luke is doing in Acts and p- kind of breaking down our, our exegesis, our journey through Acts into some, some units uh, uh, and doing some intentional things as a community. We're starting one of those today. We're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be talking for four weeks about multi-ethnic church, multinational, multiracial, multicultural church. God's dream. God's dream for the church, and the power and resources and vision that He's embedded in the church since the very beginning to get there. Um. See, from the beginning, God birthed the church to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational community as a prophetic witness to the world, a church in passionate, passionate pursuit of justice and conciliation, the whole world, every culture and ethnicity, and multi-ethnic missionary fellowship. And it's our dream. And it's where we want to run together. And we're going to do that for four weeks here. This morning, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the descent of the Hellenistic widows in Acts 6. And next week, we're going uh, to be talking about uh, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The week after that, the story of Peter and Cornelius, and finally, uh, the story of the Antioch church. And uh, uh, some people might think, in the times we're in, in the world we live in, right next to an election season, this is really dumb. Not, not a smart move to talk about multi-ethnicity right now. And uh, one, I actually think it's an amazing time to talk about multi-ethnicity um, because uh, uh, the, the, the cultural and ethnic divisions in the church are actually never so clear and po- potent in the last few years than right in the middle of an election, actually. And I think it's an amazing time to jump into it. And two, guys, it's just in the Bible. What do you want me to do? Uh, it's in there, <laughs> and it's where we're at, and, and I think... Each week has something really profound, unique, uh, uh, and inspiring to offer us. As we take a look, we're going to be wrestling every week with taking a look both at our own microchurches and the pursuit of multi-ethnicity and racial justice in our own microchurches, but also as a network as a whole. Because I don't want you to think it's only the network's responsibility to pursue multi-ethnicity and racial justice. It's yours. It's all of ours. It's a kingdom ethic uh, uh, and a profound witness in the world in which we live. So this morning we're starting that series in Acts 6, 1 through 7. It's amazing how much gets packed into seven verses. Uh, uh, And so there's a lot to say this morning. There's a lot to wrestle with and talk about. So I'm excited to let you read it the way we usually do. I'm going to let you this morning read it, read those seven verses, wrestle with it. Uh, um, If you've got something you want to mark it up, you can. Uh, and then I'm going to let you talk with a few people around you about the text. What, do you, what strikes you? Uh, 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 what do you see? What questions do you have? Um, so go ahead and take a moment and, and read that text. Let, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. God, we always come to your word in surrender and in humility. And so this morning, God, help us see what you want us to see. Help us understand what you want us to understand. And lead us into the truth. It's in your name. Amen. Go ahead and take a moment.
Okay, go ahead and get with uh, uh, two to four people around you. Uh, uh, and, you know, if there's, if there's somebody like maybe sitting by themselves near you, just be hospitable. Come on over uh, and start talking out the text a little bit. What did you see? What caught you? What questions do you have? Um, and it's okay. Extroverts can go first. Uh, uh, introverts, this is a safe space for you. We honor you. Um, so go ahead and take some time. Talk about it.
Okay, finish up your final thoughts. Let's have a little open air, open air conversation here. Um, we've got a couple mic runners. If if you if you'd like to share with the broader group, you can raise your hand. They'll run to you. There's somebody in the back there, JP. Um, and uh, you know, contribute to the broader dialogue here as we do a little Bible study. So mine, I don't have anything to share. I have a question. Yeah. Um, it's kind of confusing to me, like in verse two, where the twelve it says that they said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry in order to wait on tables. Like it, it kind of makes it sound like they thought, like, well, we need to preach. That's too low for us. So, yeah. like, I'm sure what they said was right, but I don't understand that. Yeah, so. yeah. Did anybody else? wrestle with that anybody else have more to say about that i'd love to to keep there's somebody up here too wants to wants to contribute to that yeah so we're on that part like on verse two all the way down to even at verse three it was like brothers and sisters chosen seven men from among you who are known to fool the spirit of uh the spirit and wisdom that really like left me off off there because it just really didn't tell fully why into that why it all happened, but um, from verse two, really dove, like kind of dove deep in like why the, all the 12 the disciples gathered and together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That right there kind of got me off a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a common reaction. Did anybody just generally raise their hands? Like, they just feel a little off. Just, just, I don't know how to describe it. It just feels a little off, right? Um, and I think it's important, These are, this is great, because I think it's, especially the way you posed that question, I loved that, where, where you said, I know it's right, uh, I, I just, I'm just trying to figure out how to understand it or whatever. That's, the, that's such an amazing posture, because when, when we come across something in the text and it doesn't feel right, we know that Scripture is actually always right. And so when I feel uncomfortable with something it says, it means that there's either something wrong in me or I just need to understand, the way I'm understanding it isn't quite right. And I just need to do a little, I need to wrestle with that a little bit. And I think there's a couple, there's a couple things that, that can be said here. I think one, exactly what they said, uh, you know, we, I think we would prefer, we would prefer to follow leaders who are always willing to wait on tables. In, our, in our, our understanding of leadership and the kinds of leaders that we want, you know, leaders eat last and leaders are servants and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, so I think we, we read that and we see entitlement and we see like this lower, upper kind of power scale, this hierarchy, right? And it feels uncomfortable to us. And I think there's, there's, two, there's two things to maybe offer in that, in that uh, wrestling. One, uh, um, you know, it and we'll, we'll wrestle with a little bit this, with this later, but one, uh, uh, the, the mission of God in that moment, the, har the harvest, the, they, I mean, they were preaching to people every single day. They were going out every single day. So you're looking at like one day that I spend working on this kind of like organizational situation is the harvest untapped. It's the harvest unengaged. And, and someone must be, it is like the impetus of the church. We have to be on the edge. We have to be preaching. We have to be preaching. Someone has to do that. And so we care about that, but how do we care about both things? Uh, um, but two, I actually think part of what makes us uncomfortable about that is because we, we, we see this domain called servanthood, and we put, we put waiting tables in this domain servanthood, but for some reason we put the ministry of the word and prayer outside of that. 
and they're inviting people where we almost think, I don't like that they don't want to just serve. They're not willing to serve. But what the assumption we make there is that the ministry of the word and prayer is not servanthood. And this here, this is servanthood. And they, they should be willing to do this in order, to, in order to actually level up in leadership or power to be able to minister the word and prayer. And one, they actually just spent three years walking with Jesus doing things like serving tables. So they, they have done it. It's not like they're above it. They just spent three years do, just doing whatever menial task is necessary uh, along the way with Jesus. But two, I would actually, and pe- there's people in the room who have like c- committed themselves now or in a season of time to like ministry of the word, teaching, preaching, however you want to interpret that, ministry of the word and prayer. And they'll tell you and I'll tell you, it is not easy. It's actually, I would say, th- I would read this text and I'd be like, Give me some tables. I'm more than willing. Because, you know, I think a year comes off the end of my life every time I, I preach a sermon. I mean, it's like, I mean, the labor, the toy, I mean, you're just go, you're wrestling. It's spiritual. It's like you're going to supernatural war. There, and, and you're like laboring over like, God, what is it that you want to offer these people in this moment? And I got to get it right. If I don't have anything, if I don't have a word from you, it's a waste of our time laboring over that. I've been on the phone with people who are, when I'm not in this stage, other people who are going to be in this stage in front of you on a Saturday night, and they're like not sure, and they're wrestling, and they're like staying up until three in the morning trying to figure out what do I say and how do I say it. Guys, it's not easy. It's like toilsome servanthood labor. So part of what makes us uncomfortable a little bit is we've taken that for some reason out of servanthood. But I would actually say it's like, a, like a, oftentimes a more sacrificial and dire level of servanthood. So they're, they're not trying to escape anything. Uh, uh, and, I, you know, there's, there's other things to say about that, which we will later. But I really appreciate the way you frame that question, and you're jumping into it too. Yeah. I actually saw it as a, a different approach. I appreciated the fact that he um, recognized the weakness of not being able to do it all yes. and um, acknowledging the need for it. So right. it, sort of delegating that leadership to yes. other people in the body who maybe are stronger in those gifts or um, just allowing them to take control of it, but also not just pushing it aside, but spending time laying hands on them and praying for them and still holding it up to that the same value yes. and importance as what they were doing but um, I don't I don't think it was um, a negative way yeah. I think it just sounds that way maybe it's our culture I don't know yeah but I, I don't think it was meant to be that it was a I we can't do this because we don't right. have the capacity to do right, this right so we're going to choose others to that's right help us yeah and and do real empowerment like real actual empowerment and 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 place place the decision of how to deal with it in the hands of the people who are actually closest to the problem instead of trying to deal with it from a distance and micromanage and consolidate power and we're going to talk a lot about that this morning power and what we do with it um, and how to go about that but even i really appreciate even even the idea that they took this dissent seriously they took the complaint seriously and they devoted time and, and, and uh, uh, prayer and resources and to try to take seriously the dissent that came to them. Where they could have tried to say, 
no, that, we're not actually neglecting those widows. You're, you might feel that way, but we're not. Or, or what you're seeing or what you're feeling isn't actually the case. And trying to write it off or trying to suppress it or trying to move on or trying to act like it's not important. I think that's super significant, what you said. Uh, um, to take what is in the community, in, in the community, a, a, a marginalized community of people within the family of God and to take seriously their dissent and to make significant changes to address it. I think it's huge. Hashtag trust Hellenistic widows. <laughs> Over here one, yeah. Okay, so I, I hear what you just said. Yeah. But there's this part of me that wonders, though, if like the distribution of power to other people actually is like solving the deeper issue. Yeah. Because these Hellenistic Jews and widows like were being overlooked, and the solution was to empower other people to like deal with that. And it's like a diverse group of people that are dealing sure, with that. Sure. But like, like my heart's just like. But did they like check their hearts? So like yeah. I get it. It's like we shouldn't neglect this, but like yes. I just wish that they would like maybe like I don't know in a separate passage say yeah. and this is how they dealt with this injustice <laughs> like amongst right, right. Yes. themselves in their no, hearts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because yes. it's like so quick. Yeah. And I think in the past, like looking at this passage, I always like get caught up in verse um, two or three, like where it's just like. Like, we got to give our attention to elsewhere. But, like, yeah. when you preface, like, the sermon with sure. multi-ethnicity, sure. like, the first thing that sticks out to me is just, like, this difference yes. in Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Yes. So I'm like, yeah. was this a Band-Aid or, like, yeah. did they check themselves before I think, they write I think themselves? You're, I think you're right on. Like, the, the need, needing to uh, be concerned and engaged. And you're right. We don't get the picture of the, the other one. But for us as a community to acknowledge and to, and to pursue both things, to be able to say, look, as a, as a, leader, as a leader or as a leadership team, we, ha we have very real possibilities of blind spots here. And when those blind spots are combined with power, it hurts people. And so we actually need to bring people on who are actually going to, to bring sight to the places that we're blind and give them real power and authority to collaborate and work with us. Wow, wow, I still do the work of the blind spots that are being exposed in me. I still have to grow, I still have to engage, I can't coexist with the biases in me that are playing out that way. So how do we do both, both things? Because if they would have said, look, I see what's happening here and I've got junk going on with me that spun out and made this kind of public situation possible and the solution here is I'm going to work on my junk, that takes time. It takes a lot of time. And the longer that it goes without kind of like representative and collaborative leadership, more people are getting hurt. So how do we do both things? How do we say yes to both things? Yeah, one back there. Um, just so many levels. The first thing when I first saw this, I thought, oh, what I liked about it is somebody saw a need and they made a decision. Yeah. They said, okay, we need help. Now, yeah. the poor will always be with you and there will always be conflict and there was all, there's always going to be needs that have to be addressed. I think the message here was that um, the word is priority. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, Jesus told us to go. 
What, is, yeah. what does he want? He wants us to spread the gospel. That is the most important thing. He wants all of his, our, his creation. Sure. He wants all of them to come and be his children. Yeah. So, you know, good works are good works, but the bottom line is the gospel to return the lost back yeah. to his, the, our heavenly father. So I think he does prioritize here and say that um, it's essential that the word of God must go forth. And so assigning uh, quality people yeah. to do the job as, as leaders. But you know, it's, it's really neat though. This is a really wonderful uh, piece of scripture since we have, this is the first time we're here. Sure. And the microchurch concept, this is yeah. really in a nutshell that you're, you, you know, so many churches groom the body of Christ, but they don't send them. Yeah. They don't go, and yeah. it is a really exciting to see totally. this work happening here where you are birthing ministries. We yeah. are all capable when we have yeah. the word of God yeah. to bring that message. So yeah. to see this as like kind of a nice little, like she had mentioned, delegating sure. people, yeah. leadership, and that we're all a ministry, yeah. and then what happens but increase. Eventually yeah. the end of this story is the, the end result that God is after, yeah. that the gospel goes to every one of his creation. Totally. So it's, it's really a beautiful thing, and I'm very uh, happy to have found you. We're glad you're with us. Yeah, We're glad you're this. with us. Very impressive. Yeah, let me, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in because we're running out of time. I know I saw like 14 other hands. I'm so sorry. I'll give you a hug afterwards, unless you're not a hugger. Um, but I, appre I appreciate, I appreciate that, that, that contribution that it, we really are talking about uh, empowerment here. But but not just empowerment out in the world, but like empowerment in the community also. And they do. I, I would say they take seriously the preaching of the word while at this, while applying the same level of severity to the racial justice in the community, because actually the community participates in the proclamation of the gospel by the way in which we coexist with one another. So we say a thing out loud, but we're actually defying the reality of that thing among us. We defeat, actually, the proclamation of the gospel. So I, I think it's like two things. We preach, with, we preach with our word, but we actually try to align ourselves under the, the, the truth of that word, and the way in which we exist with one another continues to proclaim and attest to the reality of the kingdom of God. And if you lose one or the other, it's diminished. It's broken. Well, let me, let me jump in, and before I, before I start, I do just want to apologize for looking like I just got out of bed, and I don't know if any of you are, like, struggling with my shirt here. Um, <laughs> thank you, Creed. Thank you. Thank you, Creed. I do get up every, I do get up on Sunday mornings at four and come in and I grab a, a sh, uh, like, a nice shirt because I want to be comfy until, like, 9.59 and then put, like, a nice shirt on, and that truck... Did, that, that shirt did not make it into my truck today, so here I am. Um, I spent probably 20 minutes when I woke up this morning trying to figure out what time it really was. I don't know if anybody else was... Because somebody told me Florida was not doing this this year. I could have swore Florida was not doing this. No, am I crazy? Florida was not supposed to do this. So I'm like, my watch says one thing, all the clocks in the house say another thing. I'm like, who do you trust? And then... Thank you, thank you. So I do, I do, uh, I guess Florida's not doing the time change thing next year. Next year it's happening. So it's a real thing, that's happening, it just didn't happen this year. Is that a surprise to some of you? Yeah, they're not doing it next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, am I lying again? 
don't trust me. Don't trust me. Don't trust me. I clearly did not know what was happening today. I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate your grace with me this morning. Um, I want to I talk this morning about how cross-cultural relationships and multi-ethnic community cannot be sustained without structural intentionality. The cross-cultural relationships are sustained by structural equity, and the church is called to both, to care about both, to pursue both, and actually the witness of the church depends on both. In the words of Brenda Salter McNeil, reconciliation happens by repairing broken systems and, and engaging power, not just focusing on relationships and feelings, because cross-cultural connections cannot be sustained without structural equity. Let me take a minute to go, go back and paint a historical picture of the problem emerging in this text. You see, Jewish people had a united religious worldview and, a, and, and for the most part, a united cultural worldview when the Jews were the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Even when the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, a kingdom to the north made up of ten tribes and a kingdom to the south called Judah made up of two tribes, even when they had a divided kingdom, they still had, for the most part, a united religious and cultural identity. But in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and conquered and threw into exile the northern kingdom, ten tribes. The Jewish people were dispersed all over the place. And then in 598 BC, the Babylonians, which is the one we have more information on, the Babylonians came in and conquered and exiled the, the tribe to the south, the, the kingdom to the south, uh, the two tribes of Judah. And again, exiled those people into dispersion among the Babylonian exile. And eventually, if you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, the, 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 the powers that be, uh, that, that were ruling over the Jewish people allowed a pocket of those people to return to Jerusalem to first rebuild the temple and rebuild the temple system and then to rebuild the city and the walls of the city to rebuild Jerusalem. And Jerusalem again became uh, the, the cultural center for the Jewish people, uh, both in, in religious worldview and cultural worldview. But uh, at the same time, not every Jewish person returned to Jerusalem. Not every person could. And so this created the tension of what's called the Jewish diaspora. That there is Jewish people spread out all over the Babylonian Empire, all over uh, Gentile lands. And, and they were trying, they, separated from Jerusalem, they had to fight to survive and hold on to their religious identity and their culture and ethnic identity among foreign lands. But uh, 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 among that Jewish diaspora, you had people typically uh, hold on to and fight for their religious identity as the people of God, but have to merge and integrate that identity uh, with, with new cultural identities over time in the diaspora. That's how you come up with Hellenistic Jews, uh, uh, people who, who were religiously Jewish, but were, were probably more so in the camp of the Greeks culturally. This was the case of the diaspora. Jerusalem was the religious and cultural center of the Jewish people, uh, uh, but the Jewish diaspora had to fight for that core religious identity while at the same time adapting and changing and merging uh, over time, over a lot of time, their cultural identity. And a couple times a year, a few times a year, the whole Jewish diaspora would, would gather and meet, or delegations of the whole Jewish diaspora would gather and meet in Jerusalem, in the center, 
at the temple system uh, uh, for the sake of Passover or other religious festivals. And when those would happen, it's important to realize that those wouldn't just be religious celebrations. They would be intercultural festivals. I mean, people from all over the place. And one of those moments that, that there was a convening on Jerusalem would have been the Feast of Weeks, which would happen about 50 weeks after Passover. And we know the Feast of Weeks is Pentecost. This was when the Spirit fell on that early church community, and Peter preaches that first sermon, and, and, and thousands and thousands come to belief. At that time, it wasn't, just, it wasn't just Jerusalem, but they had a gathering, a massive gathering of representatives of the whole diaspora. So you have a day one miracle of 3,000 coming to believe after Peter preaches that first sermon. But you also have the day two miracle of 2,000 people from, from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the time learning how to live in one family, learning how to, how to commune as one people. And while the cultural and national and ethnic makeup of the community is very complex, very complicated, uh, uh, the people in that 3,000, the people in that family, the people in the room, Luke describes the cultural makeup of, those, of that whole community in two broader categories, Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. And both of those categories, again, can be broken down into like very complex cultural and ethnic makeup, but he describes them in two general categories, Hebraic and Hellenistic, the natives and the diaspora. You might be able to say the majority and the minority the culturally affirmed, when you're in Jerusalem, which this early church is, the culturally affirmed in this space, in this world that we live in, and the culturally diminished or silenced or marginalized or disenfranchised. They would have been raised different ways, had different language, different ways of seeing the world, ate different foods, celebrated things different ways in different quantities, mourned and lamented in different ways. They would have had different jokes, different insider language, different ways that they would have seen power, status, and relationship. In Jerusalem, one of those cultural expressions would be affirmed and one would be devalued. One of, those, one of those groups of people between Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews, one of those people would be attached to privilege and status and access, and one would be marginalized. This doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? No? The Bible's not relevant, is it? I mean, this is... The looming question in these early chapters was, how will this work? How will these people be a family how will these people commune with one another? What kind of people will they be? What kind of community will this be? And the baptism of supernatural love and the joy of consistent signs and wonders, all the time seeing signs and wonders, and the focus of constant missional endeavor, always being on the edge of mission, always operating in bravery and risk, somehow all those things were not enough to keep them, were, those things were enough to keep them in the same room, but eventually cross-cultural connections cannot be sustained without structural intentionality. And here's where we see it. All those things were enough to keep them in the same room, keep them in the same proximity, keep them in the same family, but eventually, organic community starts to make structural decisions. 
And it's not just decisions about like a spontaneous welfare system that they have to put in place like on the spot and they've got to decide how that operates, who has the keys to deciding how it operates, who, who decides the policies, who decides how it runs. But it's not just structural decisions, it's also like who gets to, who, who gets to decide the narrative of who we are and, and who gets to tell our story and does everybody, does everybody have a, a, a part in it? Who gets to decide what it means for us to be home? Eventually, those cross-cultural relationships could not be sustained perfectly without attention to structure. And a lack of attention to structural realities will always result in relational breach. And this is the first time we see it. And in this instance, the minority community is being overlooked and unfairly treated in the daily distribution of food. This is the crazy part. One of the first mistakes of the early church, the church closest to Jesus, the church so filled with the Spirit, the church seeing signs and wonders all the time, the church on the edge of mission, one of their first mistakes uh, was to mirror the world around them in the marginalization of the minority community in their own family. To learn from the world, to mirror the world in the treatment of that marginalized community. They unknowingly tried to carry with them into the kingdom of God the sins of racism, classism, and sexism. How did this happen? I think it happened then the, way that it, the same way it continues to happen now. A very complex cocktail of majority culture, privilege, and implicit bias mixed with power. The power in leadership to direct, to organize, and to decide and define reality for the whole community. In other words, a multi-ethnic community simply cannot be sustained over the long haul by a monocultural leadership team. A multi-ethnic community cannot be sustained over the long haul by a monocultural leadership team. Some of you know I recently finished a master's degree from Fuller Seminary uh, back in May. Um, and on June 7th, I did, not, I did not go to the ceremony, the graduation ceremony, because who's paying for that? Pasadena, got to get all the way out there, plane tickets, uh, uh, somewhere to stay. Uh, and that's where, that's where graduation was. I did not go, but on June 7th, in the middle of those graduation ceremonies, you know, a week of ceremonies, a dozen or more black students, uh, along with uh, several faculty allies, facilitated a public protest in the middle of a formal baccalaureate ceremony on campus. There was a professor giving like a talk in this baccalaureate sermon and several, several students and faculty uh, uh, had, had signs and wore, wore silent masks and stood up and just stood in the middle of this baccalaureate as a formal protest. They were protesting the equitable treatment of black students on campus and what they called the pervasive white normativity of Fuller Seminary. And if you don't know Fuller Seminary, this is not what Fuller Seminary is known for. Fuller Seminary is actually known for quite the opposite historically. Uh, uh, and so a lot of people were, were shocked or surprised by this. And, and people slowly over the days after that protest and learning about that protest, hearing from students, hearing from faculty, people started to realize that you could go entire theological degrees at Fuller, not just classes, not just a, a theological class, but you could go entire theological degrees at Fuller without a single black theologian included in the content or course curriculum. 
And they realized they, you know, dating all the way. And, and these protests didn't just come, you know, out of nowhere, but they came on the heels of lots and lots of dialogue with the faculty and with the administration. And what they thought since ever since, dating all the way back into the 80s and even previously, was the resistance and absence of black thought at the seminary. This came on the heels of Fuller losing seven black faculty and several staff since 2012. And today, right now, there are zero black faculty in the School of Theology or in the School of Intercultural Studies. The School of Intercultural Studies. And guys, listen, this is, this is you know, June 7th when this all happened. This is an Acts 6 moment for Fuller Seminary. It is a, it's a healthy descent coming to the leaders numerous times over many, many years <laughs> and then finally having to come to, to like a baccalaureate service and just saying, this is, this is our experience. We're, this is, hear us, hear us, hear us. And I've been, uh, I've been encouraged, uh, uh, not immediately, not, not in the two weeks afterward, if you've been following that story uh, by the response of Fuller, but over the last couple of months, I've been very encouraged by the, the Fuller administration's heart to listen, to make changes, to make significant changes. But that was their Act 6 moment. What are you going to do? Are you going to write it off? Are you going to take it seriously? Are you going to try to silence or diminish or explain away? Or are you going to, hum- in humility, listen, take seriously, hear and then try to, try to put on the table every option and work and representative collaboration toward a better future of God's multi-ethnic kingdom dream. In the end, that Act 6 moment is not, is, is not actually uh, 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 a bad thing. It's actually an act of love, and it's the gift of God, actually. When, those, when, when the descent of the marginalized, because God is so often working from the margins to the center, and the voice from the margins actually comes out. It's a gift from the Lord. That prophetic word is a gift from the Lord. If responded too well. Just this last weekend, the, the CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association, had their national gathering. And again, this is the reason I talk about Fuller and CCDA is because these are organizations that historically would be seen as like, they're at the peak of this conversation. They're doing it. They're crushing it. They've got like a legacy and Multi-ethnicity, racial justice on the ground. CCDA was co-founded by civil rights activist John Perkins. I love that man. Organization committed to local and holistic community transformation. And just this last, this last week, they had their national gathering this year, and their national gathering was marred by the public. You know, they, they, because of what they do and because of the leadership of John, De, uh, John Perkins, they have an extremely culturally diverse uh, leadership team. They actually have a very culturally diverse uh, board of directors, but they are predominantly led by men. Their staff team, their leadership team, their board of directors, and their national gathering this last week was marred by the public decries of six women who were on staff at CCDA for different periods of time in different places and had a common experience of CCDA being a, a hostile work environment for women. And, to, and just to, and talking about, you know, there was one story of a woman who said when she came on staff, one of the, in, in the first week that she came on staff, there was another woman who'd been on staff many years who had to sit her down and kind of have the talk with her about how her leadership, if it's not like 
like very suppressed and look a certain type of way, her leadership will be seen as a threat to some of the men in, in power and leadership. And then it won't go well for her. This last week was an Act 6 moment for the CCDA. And how they respond is really important. Could be amazing. The future after a dissent like this comes out. But listen, two of the wokest organizations in the evangelical landscape got caught blind, and I wonder if we can't see. I just felt like yesterday reading those stories of those women and, and over the summer realizing I'm a product of Fuller and wrestling with the legacy of that institution. I just have been wrestling with this text all week wondering, what can I not see? Where are my blind spots? What can we not see? What can I not see in my neighborhood? What can I not see in my microchurch? What can I not see in our network? For a couple years now, we've been having our own Act 6 moment in the underground. And we've been, become over the last couple years more and more and more aware of the experience of people of color in this community. Feeling more and more like this isn't home for me. Uh, I am not... I'm not seen culturally. I'm not heard. Uh, my leadership is not pursued or wanted. My contribution is not pursued or wanted. I can't bring my friends here or my family. And us being able to hear over the last two years that dissent, that dissent. And I, I to the, to, am committed along with the staff team to taking that, that, this Act 6 moment that we've had for two years, even now still, and taking it as serious as possible, and trying to learn from this text, even, what it means to take it seriously, and consider my own part to play in it, and my own part in its formation. And one piece in the way that we've been, we've been uh, uh, responding to this over the last year, particularly as a staff team, is we've engaged in a, in a seven-month-long process as a team on a guided process as a, as a staff team, exploring our organizational culture and exploring our familial culture and exploring the, the, the way things go, the, every program, every leader, every policy in place, exploring our own relationships with each other and how to learn from each other, make more room for each other, make space and learn and make significant changes toward a multi the multi-ethnic dream that God has for the underground. And part of that process about two months ago was impl implicit bias training, a couple months ago. It was the first time I ever did implicit bias training. I think I like cognitively understood what implicit bias was, but I'd never been, gone through like an implicit bias test. And we, we basically, there's this online tool that we all, every single staff that that's engaged in this process, we went on and we did this implicit bias testing. And what they were testing is, you go online and you're answering these questions pretty quickly, pretty rapidly. And what it's trying to test is your association, the speed of your brain to associate white people with goodness or, or with positive or negative emotion. Or, or uh, uh, associating people of color with positive or negative emotion. Or being able to test your implicit, the speed of your brain to associate people of color with innocence or danger, or associating white people with innocence or danger. And it's literally testing how fast, it's your implicit bias, how fast you're willing to associate those things. And then everybody gets results, 
And then we all have to bring it together as a team and talk about our implicit bias. It was so good, so fun, so excellent. <laughs> Some of the people in the room are like, uh-uh. I was looking at them, they're like, that was not a great meeting. <laughs> Guys, I was, to, if I just be honest with you, when I got my results back, I wanted to redo the test. I wanted to figure out what it, how the results are coming back and try to rig the test because I was ashamed. And I, had to, and I had to wrestle, and our whole team had to wrestle with how none of us chose. Every single person at the table had an unhealthy, implicit bias in some way. Every single person. And for us to have to wrestle with how, how none of us chose to have implicit bias. None of us, not one person. But now we see it. And now we have to take responsibility for it. Because that implicit bias is informing decisions we're making, policy, the way we see each other, the way we see the network, the way we see you and train you as leaders. We have to take responsibility for it. Every single person at the table had some kind of implicit bias, unhealthy internal wiring that they didn't choose, but what we have. Bias which, if left unchecked, will hinder us from pursuing God's multi-ethnic vision his kingdom vision for the church. Fuller's not woke. CCA is not woke. We're not woke. The apostles weren't woke. Early church wasn't woke. Nobody is woke because we all have blind spots. Every single person has blind spots. And the most woke you can be is to know that you have blind spots. And to hunger for them to be exposed. Not to hunger for them to be hidden, never brought out into the open, and to try to lead in a way that never presses into them, but to know, the, the wokest you can be is to know, I've got blind spots and I need to have people in my life who are going to bring them out. Bring them out into the light. Expose them. And to respond in humility and love and grace and listening when they're brought out. Because if implicit bias is like a thunderstorm, then implicit bias combined with structural power is a Category 5 hurricane. It's going to hurt people. And the people who in, in the room who it will eventually hurt, they see it coming and they've packed their car and they're wondering every day, should I leave, should I leave, should I leave, should I leave? What's the path? Where's it coming? Should I go, should I stay, should I go, should I stay? And when such a devastating reality is exposed and the apostles are confronted with the task of dealing with this crisis, that their own, their own blind spots and their own leadership allowed for a situation like this to exist. That, and I, they don't even give us details. Again, somebody was like, they don't, we don't even actually know how this distribution happened. Are people sitting at tables and they're just like, like you know, serving tables or something? Each table, everybody sits down? Or is it like an open food line? And everybody just could come, but, but the, the Hebraic Jews get to go first or like an hour early or something like that. And the, the Hellenists go last. And there's not enough food for their widows or something. Or, or because it's, a, it's I, I think it's, it's gross. If you walk down the road of imagining that, it's gruesome to think the people are serving tables and seeing Hellenistic Jewish widows and moving on and deciding, cognitively deciding to serve them the last bits of what they have if they have any left. And for the apostles to, to allow that, 
to not see it as something significant, to not see it as something that needs to be changed until the dissent reaches their ears and they're confronted. When such a devastating reality like that is exposed and the apostles are confronted with the task of dealing with that crisis, what do they do? And while I think the incident, the incident itself is a warning sign to the future church, I think how the apostles respond to it is a model for the future church. They do three things. They invite more leadership instead of consolidating power. They invite more leadership. They publicly endorse and empower that leadership. And they keep preaching. They keep preaching. They invite more leaders, not less. They added seven men, all seven men with Greek in their name. You know, most commentators, most commentators would say that's because all seven of them are Hellenists, uh, uh, but all seven men have Greek in their names. Under threat, sometimes leaders have an impulse to consolidate leadership, not give it away. As a microchurch leader, do you have that impulse? When dissent comes, when complaint comes, do you have an impulse to consolidate leadership? But consolidating leadership will only actually exacerbate the the effect of the problem because the problem emerged from blind spots. They're not going to go away when more power is in your hands. But the apostles let the people elect leaders. They let the people elect leaders. I think that's really important. The apostles don't elect the leaders. They let the people elect leaders. And those people vote for representation. They vote for seven Hellenistic leaders, not just to serve food at tables, but to orchestrate the entire welfare system. You see, multi-ethnic community needs to be sustained by representation and collaboration. Are you hungry for a collaborative, dynamic, and representative leadership team alongside you engaging the population that you serve and love? Is your community a reflection of the people that you long to serve and love? Are you hungry to give leadership away and and real leadership, leadership that's attached to power to other people? That's the second thing that they do. They don't just see that they need more leadership, that we've got blind, blind spots here, and we don't have the, one, the capacity, or two, we actually don't have like the vision, the view to actually deal with some of these things. It's just going to keep getting worse. So they invite more leadership and specific leaders to get in the room. But then they empower those leaders. Those leaders are not just placeholders or tokens, but they have real power, can make real changes. And the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles didn't just put people in positions to engage in a public performance of repentance, but still hold all the power behind the scenes. They actually engaged in real public endorsement of that leadership and empowerment, lifting up their leadership and their voice in the community. They looked for serious, wise, qualified leaders. They gave these new leaders real power to govern in an area of the church and community. They endorsed that leadership and empowered them publicly, took their work extremely seriously. See, leaders without organizational power are not actually leaders. (laughs) Leaders without power are not actually leaders. They cannot bring the gift of insight to your blind spots, and they cannot help collaborate towards God's grand kingdom, multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural dream for you, for your microchurch, for our city. 
And the third thing they do is they, they don't just invite more leadership. They don't just empower and endorse that leadership, but they preach. They preach, they preach, they preach. Because the worst thing the apostles could do here is take a step back or slow down on the preaching of the word and prayer. Not just, not just because the harvest is plentiful, not just because the mission is critical, but also because of their own community. The preaching of the, they're not just saying like release us for the ministry of the word that we do over here. They're also saying keep, preserve our time for the ministry of the word here. Because if this is arriving, it must mean that we have not yet had our minds renewed. We have not yet fully embraced the implications of the gospel. We have not yet been caught up in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so we must preach here. It's not just organizational change. It's actually we need more word. We need more prayer. We need, they realize this isn't just an occasion to stop preaching, but an occasion to preach all the more because we need supernatural power. We need supernatural wisdom. We need supernatural healing. We need supernatural patience and gentleness and all the fruits of the Spirit. We need supernatural vision to do this work together as a broader community. And we need to create together a new community, a new kingdom culture, which gives room to the gifts of God embedded in every culture and ethnicity in the room. Because if any ethnicity or culture in the room is feeling like they have to suppress themselves, they have to diminish who they are in this room, it means every single other person in the room is robbed of some little piece of the beauty of who God is. And so if you guys, I just want to say, I just want to say publicly, just for, for uh, 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 people of color in the room who have felt that way uh, uh, before, um, who continue to feel that way, I just want to say two, two maybe quick things. One, I just want to acknowledge and, and that, that what you've persevered. And I just want to say, I see you. We see you. And it's not, it's not fair. And, and every dissent, actually, that comes forth, every Act 6 moment is a gift. And we take it seriously. And when you withhold that, it's, it's actually robbing us of some of what's necessary from unshackling us from, what, from something that's really gross and damaging. And so for every dissent, I just want you to know thank you because I know that it, 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 it's, um, um, it's emotionally very taxing. It's a very brave moment that these, these Hellenistic widows come to to actually say something and for their people to actually come to the apostles and represent them and say something. And so for those who have done that and those who continue to persevere, I'm grateful. And two, I just want to acknowledge that anyone in the room who feels like you cannot be yourself in this community, you feel like you have to code switch, you have to suppress who you are, you can't actually, you have to check your culture and ethnicity at the door and come in and try to be something that maybe fits better or like is a little bit more palatable. Guys, you're, you're damaging me. Stop, you're damaging everyone in the room because we need you to be fully who you are, fully who God has made you in Christ Jesus because you carry embedded in your culture and ethnicity some beautiful treasured gift about the kingdom of God and who God is, and we want the fullness of who God is in this room. I want every little bit of it. And so we, guys, we don't deserve that. I know I'm not asking a whole lot of you, but if you're willing, if you're willing to do that if, and, to, and to bring all of it, to feel free, to come in free, guys, you, it's, it's a huge gift. It's a huge gift. And we need it and we see it. And for every, for every way that you felt, felt bound or suppressed or like you've got a code or bound up, guys, I repent. I'm sorry that you felt that way, and I'm sorry that the culture that I steward has actually made you feel that way and has told you to do that. 
and with everything that our staff team and our governing elders and the elder community can do to actually change course and to move toward God's kingdom, multi-ethnic dream for the future of the underground, we're trying. Everything we can do. The worship team would come up. I just want to finish with this, this final little word. That multi-ethnic community cannot be sustained without structural intentionality. And the church is called to both. And the witness of the church depends on both. And so this last line, the word spread, the disciples increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient. That line is hugely significant. A large number of priests became obedient. You see, this is the first time, whenever you see like the first of something, you've got to really sit and think about why the writer included that right there, what, what's significant about this moment to make that new thing happen. This is the first time through both the life of Jesus and the early church that we've seen priests surrender their whole life to Jesus. Priests. Those entrusted with the stewarding of the whole temple system and its logic, its worldview, its power. I don't think it's a coincidence that, the, that this line comes right after this text. That somehow preaching, going into the synagogues and preaching, providing persuasive historical and contextual argumentation, healing, speaking in tongues, relentless signs and wonders, for some reason none of these things were quite enough to see priests surrender their whole life to Jesus, to see priests convinced that Jesus came from the Father and he is the Lord of all things and the temple system has been undone. None of those things were quite enough to convince priests. But I think the way this community loves one another, the way that they walk and commune with one another, the way they engage in conflict with one another, the way in which the leaders listen to dissent with one another, the way in which they walk with one another is enough proof of the death of the entire temple system. The death of the temple system's power and validity to bring us closer to God in an intimate way. This must mean that Jesus is Lord and he came from the Father. Signs and wonders were cool, but we've seen that. Preaching is nice, but we've got arguments too. That, I have no idea how that community is possible. And what it, what it proclaims to me is not just that Jesus is Lord, but is the death of the power and validity of this whole thing that I steward. So why would I stay with it? I have to now surrender my life to Jesus. Just like Jesus predicted in John 13, the way that we love one another will proclaim to the world that Jesus is Lord and that he came from the Father. And God empowering and enabling these people to commune with one another over the long haul, to engage in healthy dissent, to listen humbly, to lovingly enact changes, this launches a new season of even more profound missionary fruit than what they had seen before. Underground church, microchurch leaders, our attention to and pursuit of multi-ethnicity, structural equity, representation, racial justice, and our own microchurches is not a distraction from the mission of God, but imperative to it. And Jesus spilled his own blood to purchase the gift of this community.
to purchase the gift of a multi-ethnic dream for the kingdom of God in our city and the world. He spilled his blood to purchase for us the possibility of multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-national community. Will we open the gift? Or will we leave it? We run with him toward a God-honoring and exalting future with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's not leave it unread. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to his people at the table, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, poured it out, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning, we come to the table hungry to have our blind spots exposed. We come to the table brave and asking God to open up our blind spots open up our biases and we come hungry for him to heal us and yet we come away from the table as a family who shares at the same table with the same bread with the same cup and as we come away we declare to the watching world the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus so when you're ready this morning the elements given for you